Exodus chapter 20, we'll read verse 18. It tells us, now all the people witnessed the thunderings, the lightnings, flashes, the sounds of the trumpet, and the mountain smoking. And when the people saw it, they trembled and stood afar off. Then they said to Moses, you speak with us, and we will hear. But let not God speak with us, lest we die. And Moses said to the people, do not fear, for God has come to test you, and that his fear may be before you, so that you may not sin. So the people stood afar off, but Moses drew near the thick darkness where God was. Two main things to pull from here. The first is God and his omniscient wisdom. If you remember, I believe in chapter 19, he told Moses, hey, I'm going to do this thing and now all the people are going to respect you. All the people are going to see you as their leader. Again, if you remember a couple of chapters ago, the people are complaining about Moses' leadership. What kind of a leader are you? We're thirsty. You're bringing us out here to dry up and die. Moses, we're hungry. What do you do? Bring us out here to starve and die. And now all of a sudden, they're saying, Moses, you go. And Moses, whatever you say, we'll do. But we're not going up that mountain, right? How all of a sudden that changes. The other thing for us to look at here is that this is the most common reaction within the Bible when people come into the presence of God. When people truly come into the presence of God, the true thing that happens is first the fear and respect towards God. Let's turn to Isaiah chapter 6. And here in Isaiah chapter 6, you have an incredible man, Isaiah. He's a prophet. He's a good prophet. He's a good man. But here in Isaiah chapter 6, he tells us of his encounter with the presence of the Lord. There in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1, it says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne high and lifted up, And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above it stood seraphim. This is one of the types of angels. Each one had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. And one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out, and the house was filled with smoke. So I said, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Again, when we first encounter and truly encounter the presence of God, the first thing we should realize is His awesomeness, His power, His majesty, and our sin. Our lack of power and majesty and holiness. That's the first thing Isaiah saw. You can write down Matthew chapter 17, verse 6. The disciples, they meet with Jesus. They just knew him as a carpenter, as just a teacher. But there's a brief moment where God allows them to see Jesus in his true majesty and glory. And there in Matthew chapter 17, verse 5, God speaks out of the clouds and he tells them, This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. And when the disciples heard it, they fell on their faces and were greatly afraid. But Jesus, he came and he touched them and he said, Arise 
and do not be afraid. Again, this is what it looks like to truly be in the presence of God. We should be brought to our knees in fear, seeing his power and might and our weakness and that we're not worthy to be in his presence. In Luke chapter 5, verse 8, Peter, when he realizes who Jesus is, he falls down to his knees saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. The apostle John in Revelation chapter 1, verse 17, he says, When I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Do not be afraid. Family, have you truly been in the presence of God? This is the type of holy reverence that we need in our worship today. Again, biblically, this is what true worship looks like. This is what seeking God and being in his presence look like. You don't see people wanting to dance all of a sudden in the presence of God or wanting to have a rave or to jump up and down. There's just a falling on our faces. And truly in our worship this morning, I believe that's the sense, the spirit that was happening here. Even when we get to heaven in our perfect and glorified bodies, right? Where we will be completely perfected. There'll be no more sin, no more crying, no more death, pain, or weakness. When we see God and his presence, we fall on our faces and worship him. Again, family, our worship should be filled with reverence and gratitude to God for all that he's done for us. Again, family, how was that time of worship for you? Were you just sort of bored, just looking around at everyone? Were you just waiting, saying, oh, they have worship to sort of buy time for Pastor Zach to get there on time. Everybody's running on Cuban time, so we sort of start that off later. We have the announcement so everyone can get there. Or were you able to sense the separation between God and between us? Were you brought to your knees realizing the sins that we have done? Our lives and how they're filled and marred with sin and how great and gracious our God has been. Again, is that what worship is for you? It's truly revealing to show if you believe that you don't deserve the Lord. Or if you think, ah, God, you deserve me. I'm the best thing that's ever come into you, right? In heaven, besides God and Jesus, right, I'm the next hottest thing, right? It's truly in our worship, I believe that's revealed. It's interesting because Moses, he ends up with a different reaction. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 21, speaking of this same instance, it tells us that it was so terrifying that Moses even said, I am exceedingly afraid and trembling. And yet Moses, where he wants to go, is more into the presence of God. He wants to go even further up the mountain. He wants to go even further up in the smoke. Later on in Exodus chapter 33 verse 18, Moses will say, please show me your glory. And again, I believe that's the mark of a true believer. They see the presence of God. They know the gratitude they have to him with all that he's given them. And they just want more of his presence. We go back to Exodus 20. And there in verse 20, right, Moses tells the people, hey, do not fear, for God has come to test you and that his fear may be before you so that you may not sin. So the people stood afar off, but Moses, he drew near the thick darkness where God was. A test. That's what Moses told them, right? Anybody here enjoy tests? Anybody here like just love tests, right? Anybody in their bios like, my name's Zach Vasquez and I love tests, right? I don't think anyone here, especially if you're here in middle school and high school, I don't think any of you are like, yes, 
today's test day, awesome, right? Mostly we dread tests, and tests, really all they do is reveal where we are truly at. They reveal where you're at in biology or history. They reveal where you're at in work and if you've been paying attention to your boss. They reveal where you are truly at. And in this season, there were no spark notes. There was no quizlet. There was no ways to cheat God and tell him that you are at a different place than truly where you are at with him. And Israel, what they want to do when they're faced with this test is just run. They say, hey, mom, I don't want to go to school today. Can I come tomorrow, right? Retake the test tomorrow or next week. Maybe my friend, they'll get the test and then they'll tell me the answers, right? There's no chance of that. The reason that God wanted to place this test is so that they would see the difference between them and God. That they would grow in a reverence, a respect, and an honor for God. David Guzik, he gives us three things that were revealed within this test. First is it revealed the kind of God that they served. They served a God that was above nature. They served a God that was a personal God. They served a God that was a good God. And they served a God that was a holy God. He was completely separate from the people. Again, he was above nature. Their first really getting to know God was changing the Nile and all the waters in Egypt into blood. Are you the blood God, right? Is that who you are? And he's just revealing to them the power that our God has. He was revealing that he was a personal God. Again, he could have spoken to Moses and then Moses speak to the two million people. But their first meeting with God, God himself speaks to two million people in a personal way. Their God was a good God. They didn't deserve to be freed from Egypt. They had fallen prey to many of the same gods and idols as the Egyptians. But he's a good and just God. Finally, it's that he's holy. And that word holy, all it means is separate. And our God is holy. He is separate from the rest of all humanity, from the rest of every creation, from the rest of all the universe. Because he's creator and nothing else is. He is creator. He is designer. And there is nothing in this universe that is creator or designer. He is separate from everything. The next thing that this test revealed was God's expectations for the people. You see, their God was a moral God who expected moral behavior from his people. Again, he spoke to them, and the first thing he speaks to them is their code of conduct. The Ten Commandments, the way that they were supposed to live, and our morals should not look like the morals of this world. Again, Christian, be careful that the causes that you are championing go against what Scripture says and go against what Jesus says and what Jesus stands for. Finally, this test revealed to them their own weaknesses and the need for God's grace, help, and rescue. Again, God, he gives them the Ten Commandments. And the very next thing he's going to give them is the way to offer sacrifices to cover up them breaking the Ten Commandments. They were weak. They needed grace. They needed help. They needed rescue. And the only one that can give that grace, help, and rescue is God himself. Again, it's pretty funny, right? Moses tells them, do not fear that his fear may be before you, right? Fear not, and yet fear. That's what John Trapp says. And when our focus is on the power and awesomeness of God, it brings a sense of respect and reverence, which helps us to not sin. 
When you're focused on how amazing and incredible our God is, it helps us to not sin, right? Maybe you're that dad here and you have your little girl, your princess, and there's a guy that wants to meet her. There's a guy that wants to meet her on a consistent basis over time, right? And maybe some of you dads here, the way you first meet this individual is as you're cleaning your weapons, right? Maybe you take him with you to the mixed martial arts studio and you show him a couple of things you could do and that's to put in him the respect of the power and the awesomeness that you are capable of. So that when he's with your little girl, he will think twice on what he does because he would have a fear and respect for you. Again, that's what we should have with the Lord as we're focused on him. So interesting how quickly we can change our behavior, right? You're there speaking with your wife and you're speaking in a certain way and then all of a sudden, like Pastor Raz walks by and you just change, right? You become another person, right? You're disciplining your kids and then all of a sudden your in-laws come and how all of a sudden it sort of changes. We need to be mindful that our God, he's omniscient, he's omnipresent and that should change the way that we act with our morals. However, in and through Jesus Christ, fear and even respect sort of take a back seat to our reasoning for being obedient to God. Let's turn to 1 John chapter 4. And here we see the true reason that we should be obedient to God. The true power that should be working inside of us to help us be obedient to God. 1 John chapter 4 verse 17. It tells us love has been perfected among us in this, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment. Because as he is, so are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. Because fear involves torment. But he who fears has not been made perfect in love. We love him because he first loved us again love should be the fuel and the drive for us wanting to be obedient to God not fear because of what he can do and what he might do to us again I hope in none of your marriages here the way that you cause your spouse to do what you're asking them is because you're putting fear in their heart right if you don't do this I'm gonna do x y or z I'm gonna divorce you if you don't do this I'm gonna tell on you if you do this. We should not use fear or really manipulation to drive someone in a relationship to honor us or respect us or really obey our commands, right? Same thing with kids when they're little. It's one thing, but as they grow older, you want them to obey, not just because you're going to kill them, but because they love you. They realize how much you love them and all that you've done for them. And the same is true with God. There are many believers, many Christians who are exhausted in their walk with God because they're trying to feel their obedience with fear of man. If I don't come to church today, God's going to make me lose my job, right? If I don't go to church today, my test tomorrow is going to be a bomb. So I have to go to church today. And that's not the case. Right? Oh, I have to do this because if not, I'm not going to be saved and God's going to get rid of me. That's torment. That's just torment. That is really just torture. But the way we obey God is being reminded that he first loved us being reminded that Jesus gave up his own life to save us so now how much more should we be obedient to him we love him because he first loved us 
Now in verse 22, God begins giving them the commandments and the law of the altar, right? The altar was the place of sacrifice and atonement. Again, the Lord knew that mankind, the nation of Israel, they were not capable of keeping these ten rules, these ten commandments. We looked at it last week that the Ten Commandments, the law of God in general, is only a mirror. It's only a tutor that leads us to Jesus. All of you look so wonderful this morning, look very clean, very well kept. And what happened is you woke up and at some point you looked in the mirror and the mirror revealed to you what needed to be worked on, right? The mirror revealed what had to be worked on, what had to be changed. And how did you change those things, right? Your hair was a mess. Did you start rubbing your head on the mirror, right, to get it right? Saw a couple things in your teeth. You're smelling it, right? You're just rubbing your teeth on the mirror. No. You needed to have other instruments to fix the hair, fix the teeth, fix the face, fix the everything, right? And that's what God's word through the law does for us. It reveals to us the work that needs to be done. And the only one who can do that work is Jesus Christ. We need that other source. We need that brush, that comb, that makeup, whatever else on the side. That can only be done through Jesus. And the joy of Jesus is that it's a work from the inside out. That even though our outward man is perishing, inwardly we're being renewed each and every day. But there in Exodus chapter 20, verse 22, it tells us, Then the Lord said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, You have seen that I have talked with you from heaven. You shall not make anything to be with me. You shall have no gods of silver or gods of gold. You shall not make for yourselves. An altar of earth you shall make for me. And you shall sacrifice on your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen. And every place where I record my name, I will come to you and I will bless you. And if you make me an altar of stone, you shall not build it of hewn stone. For if you use your tool on it, you have profaned it. Nor shall you go up by steps to my altar, that your nakedness may not be exposed on it. God revealed himself to the nation of Israel through his voice and his voice alone. He spoke to all two million of them. And now he did not want any visible figure or form of him for the nation of Israel to worship. Again, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7, Paul tells us that we walk by faith. We do not walk by sight. We walk by hearing God's voice. It's a common theme throughout all of Scripture, that still, small voice. And the greatest way that we hear that voice today is through taking in God's word. It's reading God's word, taking in God's word. It's the only way that we can cleanse our way. It's by taking in, by hearing God's word. So he didn't want them to try to make any idol of gold or silver, right? We know in a couple chapters they're going to totally break this and mess it up. Next in verse 24, the altar of sacrifice was to be made from earth. God, when it came to the sacrifice, he didn't want anything shiny. He didn't want anything elaborate. He didn't want anything ornate. All he wanted was an altar of earth so that the focus of the atonement is the sacrifice and God himself. No other focus was to be there. That word atonement, I don't think we use that very often, right? That word atonement, it's to make up for an offense. I made an offense and I need to make up for it, right? Maybe you husband, you made a mistake so you bought flowers and that group of flowers is an atonement for your offense, right? 
those chocolates, that dinner, that's an atonement for your offense. You should be doing those things without offenses, but that's a different teaching. That word atonement, it's making up for an offense. It's to apologize. It's to redeem. It's to reconcile. And what God wanted the nation of Israel to know is that the only way that they could be redeemed or reconciled to God was through the simple sacrifice. The power was in the sacrifice and in the one who the sacrifice was made to. Again, even in Jesus being sacrificed for our sins, we had no part of it. That was simply between Jesus and God. All we have to do is accept it for our lives, for our atonement, for our salvation. Let's turn to Mark chapter 12, and here we will see how Jesus looks at sacrifice. Jesus' economy, right? His hierarchy when it comes to sacrifice. It's in Mark, and there in the gospel of Mark chapter 12, Mark chapter 12, verse 41. Jesus is here, and he's sitting opposite the treasury, and he's just watching people come in and now. He's watching the people put money into the treasury, and many who were rich... They put in a whole lot into the treasury. But then one poor widow came and she threw in two mites, which made a quadrants. So he called his disciples to himself, right? Imagine how important this was to Jesus. Jesus is sitting by himself. He's people watching, right? He's just watching people come and go. He sees what this woman has done and he calls the disciples. Hey, guys, come over here. You got to check this out. Watch what this woman has just done. And then he tells them, Assuredly, I say to you that this poor widow has put in more than all those who have given to the treasury. For they have all put in out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty put in all that she had her whole livelihood. Again, God, he doesn't look at the size of the sacrifice that we give him within our lives. He looks at the heart and he looks at the cost. That's what the Lord looks at. Again, we shouldn't be giving to God out of our excess, out of our abundance. Oh, I have all these leftovers, right? Imagine if you invited people over to your home. You, had, you cook this whole entire meal. You eat the whole entire meal, and then they show up and you just go, hey, here's his leftovers, right? I brought out the leftovers, right? Would you kind of feel like, wait, what? You invited me to your house for leftovers? You didn't invite me to the, like the first half of the party. This just feels kind of strange, right? Second class citizen. And oftentimes that's what we do to the Lord. Lord, I have this like broken thing in my house. You think the church wants it, right? Don't we do that to one another? Hey, I have this broken thing in my house. I either got to throw it away or drive it to Salvation Army. I don't want to drive it. You want to pick it up for free, right? And oftentimes that's what we do with the Lord. I have this broken, busted down thing. Maybe God needs it, right? No, we should be giving to God out of what costs us. So again, when we're giving to God, making those sacrifices, make sure it's not just out of the abundance, but that it costs us something. And again, this is secondary to our salvation. Our salvation is in Christ and in Him alone. That's the sweet thing. And He's the most costly thing ever. His perfect blood is the most costly thing ever. And it was to buy us. It was to pay for our sins. Again, the Lord doesn't look at the fanciness of our sacrifice. He looks at the heart. And he looks at the cost. Back to Exodus chapter 20, second half of verse 24. He says, in every place where I record my name, I will come to you and I will bless you. You see, trusting in the sacrifice in being obedient to God's desire for atonement, 
for paying for our offenses is the only place where blessings are found. Blessings are only found when we're trusting in Jesus Christ and Him crucified to be the atonement for our sins. Again, many believers, they're exhausted because they think, I got to keep a perfect church attendance. I got to start serving here. I got to do this, and then I'll be right before God. That's exhausting. You'll never be right before God. The only place where blessings, right, goodness and joy is found is when we're trusting in the sacrifice who is Christ Jesus. And again, all God wanted was a simple altar made from the earth and the sacrifice, perfect sacrifice, what was the most important thing. There in verse 25 and 26, he says, and if you make me an altar of stone, stone, it's a part of the earth, he says, you should not build it out of hewn stone, for if you use your tool on it, you have profaned it. Nor shall you go up by steps to my altar that your nakedness may not be exposed on it. Again, God did not want some ornate altar that with beautiful carvings to distract from the sacrifice and the glory that was to be placed on God. He didn't want you there and you're just staring at the, right, the carvings like, oh my goodness, look at this beautiful thing. Look at that beautiful thing. Staring at the carving. Maybe I can call the carver. He can come to our house and make a couple of those too. He didn't want any of that. He wanted the complete focus to be on the sacrifice. Sadly, in many of our churches today, we think that we need other tools to draw people to God. When God's Word tells us the only thing that can draw people to God is God Himself. It's Jesus. He will draw all men unto Himself. So we need to be careful. That's why in our worship, again, they're so blessed, they're so gifted. Dave's not, we don't give Dave like a rift, right? A whole solo on the drums, right? And everybody's just jamming, and Dave trades to Jake on the bass, and he's playing his solo, and we're all like jamming. No, that's not what it's supposed to look like. We're supposed to be focused on the Lord. I pray, I hope that as you leave here, you're not talking about me or the worship team, but you're talking about how God spoke to you through the scripture. Because if not, you're not going to change. You're not going to be renewed. And if you're going to a church, to a place where you can focus on the tools, you're never going to be changed. You're never going to be renewed, right? We're in Miami. We've had some good sports teams. We've had some bad sports teams, right? Why do you go to the stadium, right? Sometimes you go because it's a state-of-the-art stadium. But at the end of the day, you only go if the team is good. Because the whole point of that sport is to win, right? You don't say, hey, I want to go, man, they just put this new stadium. They have like a rave and a party, and I go to the game for the fireworks afterwards. No, right? You go there because the team is good. And the reason you should go to a church, the only thing that makes church good is if God himself is being glorified. And the way that God is glorified is with simple altars. But we're not trying to put our own tools or trying to gather people through, hey, let's do this or let's do that or let's repeat the same thing a thousand times. It's not that way. In Isaiah chapter 42 verse 8, God says that his name is the Lord and that his glory he will not give to another, nor my praise to carved images. But God here says in Isaiah 42 verse 8 that he will not share his glory with anyone. It's a, a sad day that we're living in today, seeing different pastors, different church leaders fall, right? But oftentimes it's because these men have taken the glory for themselves. And they think the church is about them. 
They think the church is there to serve them, to glorify them. They think the church is just a stepping ladder so that they can get to meet other famous people. And sooner or later, God sort of rips the veil and reveals to the people and to the pastor who they truly are without the presence of God. He will not share his glory. In Isaiah 53, let's turn there. If your fingers are tired, you can stay put there in Exodus 20. But in Isaiah 53... Here the prophet Isaiah, he speaks of Jesus Christ, our king, our Messiah, our leader, right? And he tells us how he came into this earth. There's different paintings, some paintings of Jesus. Hopefully you guys don't think I'm any less holy because I'm not very holy. But there's some paintings of Jesus that just make me laugh, right? I hope you guys know Jesus. He didn't walk around with his own private nightlight, right, behind his head. Now for selfies, they have like those circle rings of light with a selfie camera in the middle. Jesus, he didn't walk around with his own light for his selfies. He walked around just like any other man. In Isaiah 53, verse 2 through 3, it tells us he has no form or comeliness. And when we see him, there's no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And he hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him. Again, Jesus in his first coming, he didn't come like some rock star. He didn't come like the Pharisees. He didn't come like a king. He came as a nobody. You would look at him and that guy's a nobody, right? That's what you would think. And now our sacrifice should come to him in that same way. Lord, I'm a no one. All that you care about is the sacrifice. That's all you care about. That's all you care about. The attention was to be on the sacrifice and to who the sacrifice was given. Again, you wouldn't focus on who was making the sacrifice because the person making the sacrifice is saying, I'm not perfect. The person's making the sacrifice is saying, I am not good. I am not complete. And I need to make this sacrifice so that I would be complete before the Lord. Let's turn to Romans chapter 3. And here's the New Testament for us on our sacrifice. Again, we're blessed with this property, with this land. There's no altar back there where we have animal sacrifices or anything like that. What does it look like for us? Here in Romans chapter 3, Paul tells us our sacrifice for our sins. Romans chapter 3, verse 20, he says, Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe, for there is no difference. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God has set forth as the propitiation, that is our payment for our sins by His blood, through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance God has passed over the sins that we previously committed to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. 
Again, family, I don't know what drew you to salvation. I don't know how someone shared salvation with you, but the first thing in salvation is saying, I am a sinner. I am not right before God. Sometimes today in church, salvation or relationship with Jesus is seen as something like a, a good luck charm that if I jump in with Jesus, my life is just going to be even better. My health is going to be perfect. I'm going to be able to name and claim a couple of Learjets and different things like that. That's not the case. Us crying out to God, the first thing we are saying is, Lord, I am a sinner. Lord, I've missed the mark. The mark is perfection, and Lord, I've missed it, so now I do not deserve heaven. And not only do I not deserve heaven, but now I deserve hell. That's what we're saying when we come to God. And now we come to him and we say, Jesus, you are the sacrifice. You are the atonement to pay for my offenses so that I would be right before God and now be able to get into heaven. Now be able to have that friendship and relationship with God. Let's turn to 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4. The apostle John, he continues the same thought, the propitiation, the payment to cover up and atone our offenses and our sins to make us right and just before God. 1 John chapter 4, verse 9, it tells us, In this the love of God was manifested toward us, that God has sent his only begotten Son into the world that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation, the payment for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought to love one another. Again, the altar was not supposed to look fancy. Mankind was not to put their own tools on the altar. The power within the altar was a sacrifice and to who the sacrifice was made. Back to Exodus chapter 20, end of verse 20. It's kind of humorous. Verse 26, Nor shall you go up by steps to my altar that your nakedness may not be exposed on it. Again, in this day and age, everybody's wearing skirts. And God said, hey, I don't want the pastors to have to walk up on skirts. I don't want no wind blowing by or anybody showing too much leg. Or you're thinking about God, you're seeing some guy's hairy legs. And now your eyes are all off the Lord. So God said, hey, don't go up on stairs. Do the altar on the floor. Later on, God will actually have them put the altar on stairs. But then God will literally tell them to wear pants under their skirts. So God is very specific. We go into Exodus 21. And again, even that switch there. Our God is a God of just so much spirit, but even as he told the Samaritan woman, the way you worship God is in spirit and in truth. Our God is incredibly spiritual, right? Chapter 20 shows us the spirit and the power of God, but our God is extremely practical. And now here in chapter 21 through really chapter 23, God is just going to give us a bunch of practicality that kind of gets boring sometimes. He's super practical. That's why for us, we shouldn't just tell our spouses, I'm just in the presence of God, right? Honey, why haven't you done any of the honeydews I asked you to do like for three months? Honey, I'm just in the presence of God, right? <laughs> My love, I just got home from work. The house is a mess. The kids are crazy. This is like, this isn't the first time, honey. This is like every time I come home, what's going on? Honey, I'm in the presence of God, right? That, that shouldn't be the case for us. 
Our God is super spiritual, but he's also super practical. We need to be doing both the spiritual and the practical. And here in Exodus 21, God begins to lay down the practical things. Verse 1 Now these are the judgments which you shall set before them. If you buy a Hebrew servant, he shall serve six years. And in the seventh, he shall go out free and pay nothing. If he comes in by himself, he shall go out by himself. If he comes in married, then his wife shall go out with him. If his master has given him a wife and she has borne him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall be her masters and he shall go out by himself. But if the servant plainly says, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I will not go out free, then his master shall bring him to the judges. He shall also bring him to the door or the doorpost, and his master shall pierce his ear with an awl, and he shall serve him forever. To me, this is just my opinion, this is one of the best pictures of what Christianity should really look like. Again, some people, they read this and they think, what in the world? Moses is instituting slavery. What is going on here? If you remember, where did the nation of Israel just come from? Slavery in Egypt. How long were they in slavery? Over 400 years. So now God, he's taking an atrocity that man has made, and now he's making it practically a way to protect the lower individuals. Again, God is here and he's giving the interpretation of the Ten Commandments. I'm not good with law. I'm not good at being a lawyer. There's other guys you can ask for that. But, right, our judges in the Supreme Court, they are there to interpret the Constitution of the United States. And our God is so good that he didn't leave the interpretation to us. He made the Ten Commandments and he goes, okay, guys, now here's the interpretation of all the Ten Commandments, right? And the first thing that he deals with is the slave, The first person he wants to talk about. It's not the priest. It's not the Pharisee. It's not the ruler. It's not the king. It's not the rich man. It's not the entrepreneur. It's the lowest of the low. Our God, he cares about the orphan. Cares about the widow. He cares about the elderly. He cares about the lowest of the low. And here he's saying if someone sells themselves into slavery, if someone buys a Hebrew servant, they have six years. After six years, if they want to go, you let them go. You let them live their life. Again, in this time period, you could not go and file chapter 4 or chapter 11 or any type of bankruptcy. If you didn't have the money, that's it. You're gone. Or you would sell yourself into slavery and say, I need to pay this debt. I'm going to work for six years and then the debt will be paid for, right? There's some people, they don't have any other options. So maybe they get into the military for four years or they move far away for a certain job to create an income for their families. And that's how slavery was looked at in this day and age. We think of slavery through the Civil War and all the atrocities that happened there. But throughout all the ancient world, slavery was only as good as your master. If you had a good master, slavery really wasn't that bad for you whatsoever. In Roman times, you could have a slave and now you can take him from a slave and you could adopt him as your own son. You could give them your own name. Many good masters, they would put their slaves through education, through school, university, and colleges. Many masters during the Roman times, they would put their slaves and they would give them all of their livelihood after they passed away. So again, slavery, it's only as good as your master. But family, the difficult thing for us to realize is each and every one of us are under a master. 
whether you like it or not. And again, it's a foreign concept for us, especially in America, right? Master, what are you talking about, Zach? Land of the free, home of the brave, right? What are you talking about? I answer to no one but myself. That's your master. Your master is yourself. Your pride, your emotions, your feelings, how someone looks at you or doesn't look at you, that is what you follow. And there are many masters out there, right? Some people, they go after the master of alcohol. And whenever the bottle's calling, sometimes they try not to listen to the master. They try to say no, but then what happens? They give in to the master. For others, it's sex or pornography. And sometimes we try to say no, we try to say no, but the master keeps calling. Says, now's the time to do the deed. Come over here. And we just go there because our master is calling. Different things are our masters. For some, money is their master. And wherever money goes, that's where they follow. It might cost them their family, their friends, their relationships, their integrity, their dignity. But if that's where the money's at, that's where the master's at, that's where they'll follow. For others, it's power or notoriety, fame, and whatever path they think will lead to that. That's where they will follow. Family, the joy with Jesus Christ is he's a good master. He's an incredible master. And not only does he want to purchase us, but he wants to pay the price to free us from those other masters. That's the incredible thing of our God. All over the New Testament, you see this word redemption, redemption, redemption. That word redemption is speaking of a slave that's on the open market that someone would want to buy pay the price for them, and then let them go be free. And that's what God has done for us. He's taken us from our masters of sin, our masters of our own pride, our masters of sex or alcohol or drugs or this world, and he wants to free us. But hopefully, we are those who say, I love my master. I love the family he's given me, and I will not go free. All over the New Testament, mighty men of God, they cling to this title of being a servant. In the Old Testament, the Hebrew, it's the word ebed. In the New Testament, in the Greek, it's the word doulos. We have our doulos program because if we said we had a slavery program, I don't think any of the parents would sign up for that. But in a couple of scriptures here, you can just write them down. Romans chapter 1 verse 1, Paul says, Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ. Galatians chapter 1 verse 10, Paul speaking, am I trying to persuade men or God? Am I trying to please men? If I still pleased men, I would not be a bond servant of Christ. Paul speaking of Jesus and the humility that our Savior has in Philippians chapter 2 verse 7, he says, he made of himself no reputation and he took on the form of a bond servant and coming in the likeness of men. In Titus chapter 1 verse 1, Paul would say, Paul, a bondservant. In James chapter 1, Jesus' half-brother. He didn't come in the name of half-brother of Jesus Christ, quarter perfect, right? He didn't say anything like that. He said, James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Even the apostle Peter, right? 2 Peter chapter 1 verse 1, he didn't say, "I'm, I'm the rock or I'm the pope. He didn't say anything like that. He said, Simon Peter, a bondservant of the apostle of Jesus Christ. Finally, Jude chapter 1, verse 1, Jude says, a bondservant of Jesus Christ. Again, family, this is what true Christianity looks like. We're looking at our incredible master and all that he's given us, and we're saying, I don't want to go free. Because if I go free, my life will be much, much worse If I go free, the other masters out there, including myself, will cause my life so much harm. 
They'll cause my wife, my kids, my family so much harm to the point where God will take us, right, before the judges, before the leaders. He will pierce our ear and he will make us his own. And then our response is to say, I shall serve you forever. That is what a true believer looks like. That's what eternity in heaven really looks like, right? Jesus says, if you want to be my disciple, pick up your cross daily and follow me. Again, the way up is down within God. The way up is down and the way down is trying to go up. It's trying to puff yourself up, trying to puff your pride up. And again, there's different masters, but truly there's only two. There's only the Lord and Jesus Christ and there's Satan and the devil. And any other master we try to follow, right? Money, fame, sex, drugs, any other master we try to follow, it's just the enemy pulling our strings. It's just being used by the devil. And I don't know about you guys, I hate being used by other people. So I hope that you too will hate that and say, you know what, Lord? I love you and I want to serve you forever because he has paid the payment for us. Verse 7 through 11, he continues through, again, just the common everyday things. Now he speaks of women that were sold into slavery, but it's not really slavery. It's women that have been betrothed as a wife. He says, if a man sells his daughter to be a female slave, she shall not go out as the male slaves do. If she does not please her master who has betrothed her to himself, then he shall let her be redeemed. He shall have no right to her or to sell her to a foreign people since he has dealt deceitfully with her. And if he has betrothed her to his son, he shall deal with with her according to the custom of daughters. If he takes another wife, he shall not diminish her food, her clothing, or her marriage rights. And if he does not do these three for her, then she shall go out free without paying money. Again, we don't really talk about arranged marriages or someone being betrothed to someone else. But he's saying if a woman has been betrothed and now all of a sudden the guy doesn't want her, she can be free. Or if he marries her and now he marries another girl, he can't treat her as a second-class citizen. He has to treat her in the very same way. Now he begins speaking of laws concerning violence, right? If you have a King James Bible, that commandment in verse 13, chapter 20 says, You shall not kill. That's a bad translation. It's you shall not murder is the true word. It's premeditated homicide. There should be none of that. Within us, none of that within our nation, I think we can all agree. That's a good rule. That's a good rule, right? I don't want to be murdered. I don't think any of you want to be murdered. So, right, that's a good rule. But the Lord, he goes so specific within this. Verse 12, he says, He who strikes a man so that he dies shall surely be put to death. That's why it's not, thou shalt not kill, right? The very few verses beforehand, at the end of verse 20, was speaking of the altar, and sacrifice and there's death at the altar there's death at the sacrifice and now there's death to whoever murders another man verse 13 however if he did not lie in wait but God delivered him to his hand then I will appoint for you a place where he may flee later on I think it's in Deuteronomy there's certain cities where if you killed someone by accident you would run to that city and you would be safe there And then if somebody killed your brother or your family member, it would be your job to chase them down and speak the truth, whether it was an accident or whether it was premeditated. Verse 14, but if a man acts with premeditation against his neighbor to kill him by treachery, you shall take him from my altar that he may die. So even if he's in those cities, man, you pull him off the altar and put him to death. 
He who strikes his father or his mother shall surely be put to death. He who kidnaps a man and sells him, or if he is found in his hand, shall surely be put to death. And he who curses his father or his mother shall surely be put to death. You parents looking for some new verses for your kids? Here's a couple of them, right? (laughs) What God is doing here is he's protecting the sanctity and the power of family and parents and kids. And if we're honest today, our movies, our TV shows, how are they encouraging kids to be obedient to their parents, right? I think every single Disney princess, the way their sort of journey begins is being disobedient to mom or dad, right? And then somehow, miraculously, at the end of the story, they didn't do anything, and yet there's no consequences for the huge problems that they created, right? So he starts off in verse 15 that if they strike their mom or dad, you're going to put them to death. There is no uh, delinquent facilities here in Israel or here in Mount Sinai. If the kid dares hit his mom or dad, you put them to death. In verse 17, there it says if he's cursing at his mom or dad, wishing harm to come upon them, then you shall put them to death. Again, and we're going to see in these next verses, we're going to go through them real quick. It's just our world has turned upside down. Our nation no longer holds these rules really true and dear to our life or the way that our governing authorities, the things that they're really focused on. There, verse 16 is a great emphasis. He who kidnaps a man and sells him, or if he's found in his hand, surely shall be put to death. I don't know about you guys. I don't want my kids or my wife being kidnapped. I don't know if you guys are looking for that, right, or towards that, right? But I don't want that to happen. So now the Lord says, hey, they can basically do it one time. They do it one time, and they're gone. They're dead. We're blessed in the nation that we're in, but there are many people in other nations that have a fear of being kidnapped and put up for ransom. And God says, mankind is the only thing made in the image and likeness of God. So this is special. No one is supposed to mess with or hurt another human unless they have hurt or messed with another human. Verse 18 and 19, if men contend, two guys are fighting with one another and one hits one with a stone or with his fist and he doesn't die, but he's confined to his bed. If he rises again and walks about outside with his staff, right, he's got his crutches, then he who struck him will be acquitted. He shall only pay for the loss of his time and shall provide for him to be thoroughly healed. Again, there's no insurance in this day and age. You couldn't call your job and say, hey, I got hurt on the job, right? So what would happen is that if you got in a fight with someone and you hurt them so they couldn't work, you had to pay for all their medical bills and you had to pay for the amount of time that they were out of work. Verse 20, if a man beats his male or female servant with a rod so that he dies under his hand, surely he shall be punished. Notwithstanding, if he remains alive a day or two, he shall not be punished, for he is his property. Again, they were just taken out of the nation of Egypt. They had to throw all their baby boys into the Nile River. They were being beaten and being put to death by the Egyptian slave owners. And God, he's providing ways to protect the lower people. Verse 22, if men fight and they hurt a woman with child so that she gives birth prematurely, yet no harm follows, he shall surely be punished accordingly as the woman's husband imposes on him and he shall pay as the judge determines. Two guys get in a fight, they hurt a pregnant woman. If she loses the baby, he's put to death. But if the baby comes out, is fine, is healthy, but comes out prematurely, then the husband speaks to the judge and they have to pay 
a certain amount. Verse 23, if any harm follows, then you shall give a life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, or stripe for stripe. God is not giving the nation of Israel a code of conduct on how to fight or how to get revenge. God is giving the nation of Israel a tool to have correct and fair judgment. That is what God is having here. Again, for us, let's be honest. When somebody does something to you, do you want to do equal to them? Or do you want to add a little sauce on top, right? You want to do a little bit more on top, right? We always want more out of it. But now if we've done wrong, then we want grace and mercy, right? Someone else does wrong, we want them to get hit with a ticket, suspend their license, boot their car, do all sorts of things. But if we do it, oh, God, I want grace. God is here giving Moses and the wise men that were put in charge to hear all the people's problems, gives them the wise way to execute justice and judgment, right? We don't allow pranks at any of our camps because they get out of control, right? Someone uses a can of shaving cream on you, what do you do? Two cans of shaving cream, right? They use two cans of shaving cream on you, what do you do? Two cans of honey on them, right? They use two cans of honey on you, what do you do? You do three cans of nair on them, right? It always escalates. It gets worse and worse and worse. So that's why God says for the judges, if there's a certain crime, there's a certain punishment to fit it. Verse 26 and 27, if a man strikes the eye of his male or female servant and destroys it, let him go free for the sake of his eye. If he knocks out the tooth of a male or female servant, then he shall let him go free for the sake of his tooth. We can go through these real quick. Again, it's always it's a joy going through the Bible verse by verse, chapter by chapter. I don't know how many of you guys are going to be cut to the heart in these next few verses, but let's go through it. If an ox gores a man or a woman to death, then the ox shall surely be stoned, and its flesh shall not be eaten. But the owner of the ox shall be acquitted. But if the ox tends to thrust with its horns in times past, and it has been made known to his owner, and he has not kept it confined so that it's killed a man or woman, the ox shall be stoned, and its owner shall be put to death. So if you have an ox, and all of a sudden it's like, it becomes jaws, and he likes tasting death, right? If you knew this and you did nothing about it, you were put to death. If it's the first time the ox does it, you put the ox to death and you can't have a barbecue with the ox that just got killed. Verse 30, if there is imposed on him a sum of money, then he can pay that to redeem his life, whatever is imposed on him. Whether it's gore to son or a daughter, according to this judgment, it shall be done. If an ox gores a male or female servant, he shall give to their master 30 shekels of silver and the ox shall be stoned. And this is interesting. This is so sad. If you remember in the New Testament, the payment for Judas giving up our Lord and Savior Jesus was 30 pieces of silver. Verse 33, if a man opens a pit or a man digs a pit and does not cover it and an ox or donkey falls in it, the owner of the pit shall make it good. He shall give money to the owner, but the dead animal shall be his. So you have a pit, an animal falls in it. You can cook it, but you got to pay for whatever you lost. If you're at the beach and make a big hole, make sure to cover it. Verse 35, 36. If one man's ox hurts another so that it dies, then they shall sell the live ox and divide the money from it. And the dead ox they shall also divide. Or if it was known that the ox tends to thrust in times past and its owner has not kept it confined, he shall surely pay ox for ox and the dead animal shall be his own. 
Again, our God is so practical. Our God gave all these rules because he knew these things were going to happen, right? This person's dog bit me. Now what do I do, right? This person fought someone else. They were negligent. They killed someone else. What do we do? Our God not only gave us the Ten Commandments, but then he gives us the interpretation for the Ten Commandments. All that to say, family, be reminded, is our focus on the altar. The simple altar of the cross is our focus on the perfect sacrifice made for us. We had nothing to do with it. It was an agreement with God and Jesus Christ. And now he just says, hey, if you want this gift, you can have it. Right? Is that our focus within it? Is our focus in being a servant of God? A slave of God? Is that where your focus is at? Or are you still trying to say, I want to be a Christian, but I want to do everything I want to do. I want to live by my own rules, my own regulations. I feel like this and this really is important, so that's what I'm going to live on. Or are we going to say, God, what your word says is most important. Again, the day and age we live in, if you kill a woman that has a baby, you're charged with double homicide, right? But abortion is completely legal within our nation. To the point where they're fighting, how much abortion can we really have? Can the baby be half-born and then you pull the brain out and then it's okay? That is where we are at as a nation. Are they chasing down people that are kidnapping other humans? That's not the focus of our Congress. That's not the focus of our House of Reps. But again, God tells us that it all begins with the House of God. The morals that we live by should not just be morals that are there biblically for other people to follow. Those morals are there and we're saying, I'm going to follow these morals. And I'm going to follow these morals and I want all of mankind around me to follow these morals as well. Because God created us and he wrote the rule book. 